Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 5, Fallen Warrior. Hagrid, Harry struggled to raise himself out of the debris of metal and leather that surrounded him. His hands sank into inches of muddy water as he tried to stand. He could not understand where Voldemort had gone and expected him to swoop out of the darkness. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Turkile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A big thanks to Audrey Marshall, Catriona Gilmore, Athena Noir, Anna Vivian, and Ashley Bird, who are all some of the fabulous patrons who are supporting Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And if you would like to join them, we would be so glad to have you. Also, amazing names. We have a Marshall, a Gilmore, an <laughs> Athena, a Vivian, like Vivian Lee, and a Bird. So cool. It's a strong cast. Also, a big shout out to our local group in Birmingham, Alabama, the Magic City Muggles, run by Christina Gamble and Megan Chard. We're so thrilled to know that we have listeners and readers in Birmingham. And if you would like to join a local group, many of whom are now meeting online, you can and just go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on local groups. Another great two names of Gamble and Chard. Like I would eat a recipe called Gamble and Chard. I would go to a law firm called Gamble and Chard. I would go to a hotel called Gamble and Chard. <laughs> I probably wouldn't go to a nightclub called Gamble and Chard. <laughs> I would. <laughs> You're so stuck up. Casper, you have a story for us today through the theme of health. What have you got for us today? 
For two years, I lived on Trowbridge Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is just a few minutes walk away from our shared home of Harvard Divinity School. And it was a lovely house. I had three other roommates and then shared a room with my now husband, Sean. And, you know, it was like any shared house. There's not a lot of communal space that isn't used most of the time. The one place that I could go to really get peace and quiet was the closet in which were stored old tools, winter jackets, snow boots, salt to salt the snowy roads of Boston in wintertime. And there was just enough space to put a little meditation cushion on the floor, which after a few months, you couldn't tell what was cushion and what was like dust bunnies. But anyway, I would sit there every morning and do my little meditation because I was feeling very spiritual and, you know, divinity school. And then one day I downloaded a meditation by Jack Cornfield in which he introduces the metta meditation, a Buddhist practice where you wish health and wellness for yourself. You wish it for someone that you love. You wish it for someone that you know barely. And then finally you wish it for someone that maybe you're struggling with. Really beautiful practice. And there was a phrase that he used that has stayed with me forever. And he says, may I be as happy and as healthy as it is possible for me to be. I was just like, that is so smart because so often we think about health as like either you're healthy or you're ill. And it's very difficult, I think, to talk about health as a theme when you know that maybe you have broken bones that aren't you know, ever going to be how they were, or maybe you have a chronic condition that you know is never going to disappear magically. And so that phrase, may I be as healthy as it is possible for me to be, disrupts this binary that we often live with between health and illness, or even, you know, thinking spatially as I was sitting there meditating amongst, you know, old boots, either you're going to have a totally spiritually beautiful life where you have incense burning and a beautiful room and yoga mats, or you're not doing anything at all. And I was meditating as as much as it was possible for me to do. I was finding that middle ground. And I think there are going to be in-betweens between this pure health and pure illness. And so I really love that phrase, you know, as healthy as it's possible for me to be. And that's what I want to read in this chapter, because we see really terrifying things happen, right? We lose Mad-Eye Moody. George loses an ear. And his response is is so quickly humorous. And, and I want to dig into this idea of what is this middle place, which frankly we all live in, which is somewhere between like in quote unquote perfect health and not having any health at all. Yeah, Casper, I, when we first got assigned this theme was like, this is not a theme, it's a <laughs> thing. And then being given the opportunity to reflect on it was really powerful because yeah, we think of health as something as empirical and it's not. And so I'm really excited to dive into that with you. Um, Casper, I think I can do a pretty healthy job of a 30-second recap. What do you think? Let's have it. I want a full dose of 30-second recap power pills. I'm going to do the best I can be, <laughs> Jack Cornfield. <laughs> All right, Vanessa, let's put 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one. Go. So they land and then Harry passes out and then he wakes up and Ted talks and Andromeda are there and he's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm not Bellatrix. And he's like, OK. And then they go to the to the burrow and they were supposed to be the third back, but they're the first back. And then Mrs. Weasley's still so nice about it. And Ginny's happy to see him. And then everybody comes back in twos and George is injured and then Mad-Eye is dead. And they're all sort of standing there realizing like, oh, I guess there's no one else to wait for. And Kingsley goes back to the ministry or to the parliament and um, they drink to Mad-Eye Moody. 
Uh, just a factual correction. Number 10 is actually different from parliament. So the executive yes. of the prime minister is is different. But they're a very close walk away from one another. You know, the sad thing is, is that I knew that. We, <laughs> we don't know where the prime minister is when Kingsley returns. But he says number 10. He says number 10, but he could. He could go there, realize that the minister is not there and be like, exactly. shoot, got to go to parliament. He's having a late night at the Capitol. Got to go. Okay, your turn. Best of luck, because I did a very healthy job. Jolly good show. Jolly good. On your mark. Get set. Go. So the big news is Voldemort can fly, and everyone's, like, freaking out about it. Um, (laughs) So then there's a sort of game of whack-a-mole, like, who's here? No, hit him. No, they're gone. Wait, who are you? No, you're really Arthur. Don't let get in the way. George, ear has gone off. He's feeling very saint-like because he's feeling holy. Everyone's doing fine. Fleur is like, oh, my God. Um, And then, yeah, Mad-Eye doesn't disappear. But Harry's like, "You no, it wasn't Mundungus. Everyone's like, it's not Mundungus. And Harry's like, no, no one betrayed me. I'm not going to fall into that game. And Lupin is not happy about it well you added one good point <laughs> that Voldemort can fly oh no that like everybody is accused is like Jacques and Harry is like no I trust everyone what's the French word for trust <laughs> Jacques no I trust everybody <laughs> <laughs> wow your French is perfect <laughs> So, Casper, I would love to start actually sort of at the end of your 30 second recap, which is all of this skepticism that people have throughout the chapter. And I think that skepticism is actually one of the words where we use the word healthy, like make sure that you have a healthy amount of skepticism. You want to be like just a little bit on your guard in certain Mm -hmm. situations. And what was so interesting to me is that Harry was saying in this situation, that skepticism is not healthy, that this is a moment in which complete trust is the only option. And I think that we see we see it so beautifully demonstrated sort of character by character. Like Molly Mm. is running toward Harry, ready to hug him and is like, Harry, you're the real Harry, right? And like she's she's checking in that he's not one of the six other Harrys, but also like, are you really the kid I love? Good. It's like, great check, Molly. And then Lupin and Kingsley, who are both like seasoned injured warriors, are really rigorous about it. And then Mr. Weasley, who we know has been really rigorous about this in the past, is like, I don't care. Let me see my son. And so it was interesting to me who was skeptical when. And then I feel like Fleur in this moment of having just seen someone she respects die is so Mm -hmm. shaken up that she's like, I don't know who of you did it. So I'm wondering what you make of that, of when skepticism is healthy, when it's not, and what how you saw it in these characters. Yeah, it's so interesting because the health of the order itself is betrayed, right? Like the kind of trust that they have in one another is immediately broken as soon as they see all these Death Eaters in the previous chapter. I mean, to some extent, I feel like a crisis doesn't make you, it reveals you. And so the healthy skepticism is the thing that is the dividing line between Harry and Lupin. That's where we really see, I mean, we really see a gulf growing between the two of them in this chapter. And it was painful to read. Because Harry says, like, I don't want to live like this. I do not want to think that anyone 
has betrayed me purposefully. And he's looking at Hagrid as he's thinking about it, right? He's seeing Hagrid who threw his body to protect Harry. But like, he knows Hagrid loves him. He knows his intentions are good. And he knows that sometimes Hagrid reveals information that he shouldn't. And so he's like, I don't want this to turn into a witch hunt, right? Like, I don't want Hagrid expelled from this community. It's more important to me to hold this group together. And Lupin is like, you are being just as foolish as your father. And your father was killed for his lack of skepticism, for his lack of healthy skepticism. I think for Lupin, it's just too painful to see that happen again. Like he's just lost his comrade in arms in Mad-Eye Moody, right? Like I didn't even realize Tonks had been a mentee of Mad-Eye in the ministry, right? There's so much more that has been lost for them, I think, than for Harry in Mad-Eye's death. And that, that shows up here. Yeah, I also think one of the missed opportunities that I'm sure I live out in my own life is that I wish that Lupin and Harry, rather than this letting them divide them, they would be like, well, thank God both of us are in this group because you can be the voice of skepticism and I can be the voice of hope. And like this group is better because it has both because sometimes we're going to need your skepticism and sometimes we're going to need my hope. And instead, we let these things divide us when really they're like so beautiful together. And it's not like they both haven't had the other thought. Right. right? Harry literally has the thought of like, who did it? Well, it was probably Hagrid, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's not like he's uncognizant of that. And Lupin, of course, would be thinking the same thing of like, if we start to say this, it's going to break up this group further. Mundungus has already left. Mad-Eye is now dead, right? Like, how many of us more can we lose and still be a functioning unit? I also was wondering about Lupin, you know, at the end of the chapter, it's Lupin and Bill who go to get Mm -hmm. Moody's body. And these are the two men who've been bitten by werewolves. And I didn't know if it was because it's the two men who've bitten by werewolves, if they have more respect for a physical body. Like they know that a body can betray you or a body can serve you. And I think if you've been a relatively healthy person, you get to sort of take your body for granted and be like, Moody's dead. It doesn't matter if we have their body or certainly it isn't at the top of anybody else's Uh minds. But they know, Bill and Lupin, that a body can be weaponized. And they immediately are like, well, do you want the Death Eaters to get it? And the fact that it's sort of the two werewolves who go really struck me that they have a different relationship with the human literal corporal body than the rest of the order. That gives me chills. I mean, it's so true that once you go through an experience where you you feel the limitations of your body, that you're so much more cognizant of it and, and probably grateful to it in some way, even, even if also frustrated because of its limitations. Right. Because so often, especially in our Western culture, we're kind of brains walking on a stick. Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Our sense of self is so much in our head. Like we, we kind of lose the sense that we have a body. I mean, I'm also just thinking how meaningful it would be to Moody, who was, I mean, his body was locked in a seven layered case for an entire year. I mean, to just leave his body to be used and abused again by the people who did that. Oh, I'm so grateful that that Lupin and, and Bill go and get him. And this is a dangerous task that they're going on for, quote unquote, just somebody's body, right? Voldemort is out there and someone has died. Like, this is a really dangerous thing. It actually, this hadn't occurred to me before, but it reminds me of when Harry risks his life to bring Cedric back. Hmm. And I think that we see a lot of this now with the coronavirus, the extents that we are 
are going to to give our bodies dignity and to have memorial services and funerals. And Mm -hmm. I think that there can be this like feeling that it's meaningless that once the person is dead, who cares? But I love that we as a society still cherish these things that like allowed our minds and hearts to exist. Mm -hmm. Casper, where else did you see this theme of health in the chapter? Well, I think we have to talk about George because, I mean, he comes back and he's bleeding profusely. Lupin says that he was barely able to keep him alive. Blood is everywhere when they arrive at the burrow. And it turns out that his ear is gone. It's been cast off by dark magic. And after cleaning it up and caring for him, what's just left is a hole. I mean, it's gruesome and it's horrible and everyone is in shock. And and then they lean over him and ask like, Georgie, how are you doing? And the first thing that he shares is a joke. Reading it this time, I was angry at him. I was like, you're not allowed to joke about this. <laughs> you know, like, this is serious. I nearly want to ask you, like, is this even reasonable? <laughs> like, are we so far-fetched here in the story? Like, help me understand this moment. Is this healthy? Is it a healthy reaction, I guess? So I can't attest as to whether or not it's healthy. But one of my early memories is, you know, my father's had a brain tumor since I was quite young. And my brothers and I knew that he was going into the hospital the following morning. And I was seven or eight years old. And I woke up. And it must have been because I heard my parents. And I went into the bathroom and my mom was laughing hysterically. And my dad was just right. Like he didn't want to see her upset. So he was like doing a full comedy routine in the bathroom as they were getting ready to go to the hospital for him to have brain surgery. And I think that as the patient or victim You love the people who are taking care of you and their heartbroken faces hurt you. And so you want to see them smile. I even think it's believable that it's like not a very good joke. If it was a better joke, maybe I wouldn't buy it. (laughs) If it was like a truly funny joke. And then they keep going, right? Like Fred gets the cue and is like, at least you'll be able to tell us apart now, mom. And like, I love it. I'm like, yes, do it. All the jokes. I mean, yeah, it just shows how strong their relationship is as a pair that Fred is able to pick up on like, okay, George, you're feeling like this. Like, let let me run with it. Let me support you in it. You know, and they stay behind inside when everyone else goes outside. Like there's, there's so many sweet moments where you really see that the healthy relationship between those two brothers, they really are inseparable. I wonder if... When they're alone, Fred doesn't turn to George and say, like, you okay? And George say, like, I was so scared. It would be unbelievable to me if they never had that moment. But the fact that we don't see that moment and that they don't do it publicly might make total sense. Where else in the chapter did health show up for you? So I would love to call attention to one of my all time favorite moments in the text and then for you to help me make it about health. Uh huh. And it is a moment that I've never noticed before. And that is Harry gets startled when he sees Andromeda Tonks, Tonks' mom at the safe house. Yes. Because she looks like Bellatrix. And he's like, you. And he goes to grab his wand. And it says that Ted hands him his wand and gently touches Harry's arm with the wand and was like, mm. oh, you dropped your wand while you were unconscious. It's right here. And It's a wild thing to do to hand a weapon to someone Mm -hmm. 
who is looking at your wife as if he wants to hurt her. And I just thought it was the most beautiful pacifist move of like, oh, do you need to attack us? Here you go. I I mean, I guess if we're making it about health, it's like, was this a healthy strategy of like showing him you have nothing to be scared of? Your wand is right here. Yeah. But like if Harry was just like the slightest bit more hysterical, he could have cursed Andromeda. I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind is that I think for someone like Harry, who's now been used to having a wand for, for a significant number of years, I think it feels certainly incomplete to walk around the world without a wand. It's a bad analogy, but like if I leave the house without my phone, I'm super conscious. It's the perfect analogy. I, These are our wands. Yeah, these are our ones. Like they are capable of so many things. And so to some extent, what Ted is doing is kind of restoring like a branch to the tree, right? Like he's saying to Harry, like, this is part of your health. And so I it belongs to you. It's it's part of your agency, part of your healthiness. I just think Ted is one of these like genius nurses. I had one once who like just knew that I needed to talk and like sat in there with me. And Ted just seems to me like this consummate healthcare professional who is like, let's give him back his wand. It'll make him feel in control. And like that feeling will disarm him enough. He won't do anything. And I basically want to read Ted Tonks's biography. I'm like, who are you? What do you <laughs> How believe? How did you get to be this way? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a meditation closet? Oh, you <laughs> swept it. Interesting. <laughs> 45 Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
One thing in this chapter that does strike me, which feels relevant, you know, over the last few years, we've had this growth of kind of like a wellness industry. And in many ways, that's wonderful, right? Like mindfulness, meditation has gone really mainstream. I think there's a growing awareness of alternative therapies being beneficial in addition to Western medicine and mind-body connection, like all sorts of things that are really positive. And <laughs> there's been a commercialization and a really nearly non-scientific exploration. Not nearly. Of there's been a dangerous exploration of quote-unquote wellness culture. Right. And I think one of my biggest challenges with it is the way in which it individualizes what wellness is about, right? Like if only you do these things or you buy these products or you change this about yourself, you will be well, you will be healthy. And what strikes me so much is in this chapter, how that is completely negated. We've talked about Harry's physical recovery coming from Ted's care and, and skill. But even in the rest of the chapter, we see Bill raising a toast, kind of drinking to everyone's health. There's a sense of rather than kind of like individual self-care, like a real focus on community care really, really strongly in this chapter. And I, I love that because I think it's one of the things that can get lost within the narrative of being able to buy wellness. We need one another as our medicine. That's the thing that helps us through. I think that the other side of the wellness industry, which I think is like one of my favorite things that is sort of being talked about in health, is the idea of disability studies. Mm. And this is a quote that I pulled from a paper by Gillies and Seltzer in 2010. And it says that disability studies involve scrutinizing not bodily or mental impairments, but the social norms that define particular attributes as impairments, as well as the social conditions that concentrate stigmatized attributes in particular populations. And what I love about that is that we're starting to talk about health as a social construct, right? And I think Fleur is sort of like the patron saint of that, of like, Bill is just as beautiful to me with his scratched face. And we need to stop seeing these things as binary, as like mm. two-eared people are normal and one-eared people are not normal. That is capitalism, who wants to build headphones for the most people possible. And like the way to market headphones are to two-eared people. But that doesn't mean that one ear is better or worse. And I, I know that this is something that I want to be studying more and more and thinking about more and more. The place where I really see that show up is with Hagrid. I mean, he literally gets stuck in a doorway at some point. And it's so easy to read that as like, oh, Hagrid is so big. But it's like, no, he's just in a space that was built for smaller people. Yeah. And I mean, I've only had a tiny, tiny, tiny taste of this, but I used a wheelchair for three months after yeah. recovering from my accident. But suddenly every tiny little step became this insurmountable obstacle. And I was like, why don't they just build this? <laughs> People using wheels can also access this building, right? Like yeah. I got a tiny, tiny insight into the daily frustrations. You just realize how the world is designed and built for a certain type of person. And like nearly no one is that person, right? Everyone has something in some degree that, you know, we deviate from that idealized norm. So what's coming up for me, Vanessa, is is we're really seeing kind of two things that are both true about health. One is that it's a biological reality, right? It's something that we do want to encourage one another to have a healthy work-life balance. We want to have healthy relationships. We, we do want as much health in our life as possible. And then on the other hand, it is also a social construct in terms of like, well, who gets to say what healthy is, right? Or what healthy should look like, or, well, you don't have a yogi's body or you're not a runner, all of that kind of stuff. 
So, I mean, this is why I love that Jack Cornfield quote of like, may I be as healthy as it is possible for me to be? Because it it breaks down this sense of like, you're either this or you're that, but it it does lean into the, what's a healthy way of being healthy? I guess that's where I'm landing. What's a way that feels measured and informed and realistic, but also that probably demands something of me that feels doable. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the answer is both. There are times where you are in pain and there are things, right, like if you don't clean a wound, it will get infected, right? Like there are scientific truths about our bodies. There are certain things that will kill us. And yet there's also the personal experience of our bodies, right? We Mm -hmm. have to see these things as complicated. And maybe Hagrid being half giant comes with some health complications, right? Like he needs different dosages than other people. Like there are some physical realities that his body is different because he's a giant. Lupin does not question that Hagrid is who he says he is because polyjuice potion does not work on half giants. There's a biological reality to Hagrid's half giantness. And then there's just like a lot of like counters being way too low and doors being too small. It is both physically real and a social construct. So this is my last question on the theme, because in some ways, I actually think Voldemort is a really, really interesting character when we read it through this theme, because he doesn't understand what is happening to his own body. Right. He is saying, why did this one not work? In his brain, we suddenly see the scene of Voldemort torturing Ollivander. And this is also so common for people who are like, why can no one explain what is happening to my body? Right. You're supposed to be a doctor or why am I getting competing advice? Right. Like, I just want to understand my own body. And I just never seen Voldemort through that lens, like he's frustrated, he's angry, he's confused, he's he's concerned, he's scared. And I think that's a very common experience for those of us who just don't know what's going on in our physical bodies. So next time I'm at the doctor frustrated with a, like <laughs> their lack of skills in diagnosis, I can be like, oh, I feel like Voldemort. No one gets me. <laughs> You're like Ollivander and I'm like Voldemort, you know? <laughs> Hashtag relatable. <laughs> Vanessa, we're returning to our OG spiritual practice from the podcast Lexio Divina. And just as a reminder, this is a four-step practice in which we take a little snippet of text, and I'm going to choose a sentence at random from the chapter, and then we, we ask ourselves four consecutive questions. So I'm going to flip through the pages and choose this one. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent 12 full glasses soaring through the room to each of them. I'll just read that again. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent 12 full glasses soaring through the room to each of them. So we'll start with with step one of Lexio Divina, which is to ask what's going on in this passage? What's the literal reading of these words? Vanessa. So this is at the very end of the chapter when Bill is making sure that everybody has some fire whiskey to drink to the life and memory of Alistair Moody. Mm, That's right. So let's go to step two, which is when we're going to ask ourselves, what allegorical meaning can we find in this reading of the text? So we're thinking of stories or images or songs or or myths that that this particular phrase reminds us of. So I'll read it again. 
Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent twelve full glasses soaring through the room to each of them. I mean, the first thing I'm thinking of is the Last Supper. Me too! (gasps) Really? Jesus and his apostles! (laughs) And one of them betrayed. (gasps) Whoa. The number twelve, I was like, well, okay. I mean, the communion metaphor is really strong because, of course, Jesus said at that dinner, like, here, take this, my body broken for you. There's this kind of presentation of the food and drink, or in this case, the drink, and they're gathering in remembrance, which is interesting. And of course, so much of the Christian liturgical tradition of communion now is that you remember Christ. I mean, they're remembering Madai, but that theme is really strong as well. I like the idea of Moody as the Christ-like figure because I think that You know, we obviously think of Harry as a Christ-like figure at the end of this book, especially where he dies and gets resurrected. But Moody sort of did too, right? He got, to your point earlier, he got put in that box and pulled out again. And with all of his near misses, he's lost a leg. He's lost an eye. Like this man has been through things. This man has been to death and back. And then to have him actually be gone. And it actually is to some extent similar to Jesus in that We don't have his body, at least not yet. And so there's this empty tomb aspect of it as well. And so I like the idea of placing that onto Moody instead of onto Harry. Harry, it's not all about you. Why are you so obsessed (laughs) with you? (laughs) So, yeah, and I guess I like the idea that like all of us have opportunities to sort of lose certain parts of ourselves and rise again, right? And also, I mean, this takes us back to the conversation we were having about health. I mean, Moody himself, right, having lost an eye, having lost a leg, he's certainly the strongest aura, the most skilled person. And Voldemort immediately assumes that the Harry who's with Moody is the real Harry. And so it just plays with that concept of like, what does health look like, right? We see Alistair, the greatest warrior, really, of this group, even even with those disabilities or perhaps because of those disabilities. Well, let's let's go through to our third step, which is to think about if we read this sentence, what does it remind us of in our own lives? So here it is once more. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent 12 full glasses soaring through the room to each of them. I'm just reminded of all the parties that we would have at home. Our house was always full of people. We had a bed and breakfast. There were people who lived upstairs. There were parties and events happening all the time. And some of my happiest memories at home were kind of like walking around with a tray of mince pies or filling up people's glasses or, you know, the laughter and conviviality. And as I say all of this out loud, I'm like, I miss parties. <laughs> you know, I think the times when even my apartment now in Brooklyn, like the times our apartment felt like our home was when we could host people. And so there is something so magical that is consistent throughout these books, the way in which the borough plays this home for Harry, but it's a home for the movement, right? It's a, it's a safe place for the order in ways that Grimmauld Place kind of never can. And yeah, it's because it's loved, it's full of people. It's the fact that there's 12 glasses, right? Lying around waiting to be filled says something about what this building is for. How about you? What does it remind you of? You know, I was so excited to move out of the dorms after being a proctor for seven years. And (laughs) like, as soon as I had unpacked, I had a party in which like six of my former students were. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I loved it. Right. Like I loved hosting students every week. Yeah. So, yeah, it just reminds me of proctoring. I feel like we complain about proctoring a lot, but there was a real joy in gathering students once a week, at least sometimes. Sometimes it was fun. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's read the sentence one final time. Traditionally, the fourth step of Lexio Divina is to ask yourself what God is asking you to do. The way we do it is to think, what is the text inviting me to do? And we always try and think of something that's actionable in the next few days. So let me read it one more time. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent 12 full glasses soaring through the room to each of them. I just had an idea, but I don't know if it's possible. It's so striking that Bill is using magic to share the glass, right? He's not touching the glass and bringing the glass to them. So there's actually social distancing or physical distancing between Bill and the people who are drinking the glass, at least in how he's bringing them the glass. So I'm suddenly imagining, can I like send friends an invitation to come to a virtual cocktail party and send them a glass in the mail, some sort of like make a cocktail party fun by adding that element of like sending people something. I thought you were like, I don't understand why we don't open restaurants and just use magic. That is definitely (laughs) what I thought you were gonna say. Like, God, Bill can do it. (laughs) And so can you. (laughs) How about you? What's coming up for you? (laughs) The only thing that it's really bringing up for me is how much I miss drinking with friends like (laughs) I have like plans with all my local friends for whenever we're allowed to see each other again and almost all of them involve cocktails and that's not because I'm a big drinker but it's because to me a cocktail is something celebratory and it's Mm. like as soon as I see them I'm going to want to kiss their faces and also to like cheers to the fact that we're together obviously you don't need alcohol to celebrate but I think what it's calling me to is to like really write down my plans with every single person. I don't know. It's just also making me reflect on it's probably not going to look the way I think it's going to look. You know, a lot like the scene, the Mm. glasses might have been out for 14 of them to cheers. There might be this much fire whiskey in the house because Molly was like, well, then we're all going to gather and Harry will be here safely. And, you know, the cups Mm. are out and it doesn't end up looking the way that they thought it would. Well, I'm never going to read that sentence the same way again. That's beautiful. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you so much, Casper. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Corey. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name is Corey, and I'm calling from Medford, Massachusetts. (gasps) Medford! There's one scene in the whole Harry Potter series that I think about more than any other scene, and especially now. And it's the scene where Neville is in St. Mungo's, and his mother hands him that bubblegum wrapper. He cherishes it. He holds on to it. And I'm thinking about it a lot now as families face the trauma of losing people they love with that barrier of social distancing, keeping them from saying goodbye, from holding their hands. And it's something I relate to. I I lost my mom in December, and because my whole family's in Kentucky, I didn't have time to get back. I didn't have time to get to the hospital before it happened quite suddenly. But when I did finally get home, I found this note that she had written out to me, something she wanted to share on Facebook, but she wanted me to edit it. And it was this story about me coming out as gay and how relieved she was that I was happy and that what she thought had been a shadow between us was really just this revelation of my true self. And I could tell by the way that she wrote the note that she wasn't sure that this was worth anything. She wasn't sure I'd want her to post it. Mom wasn't as confident in her abilities as she should have been. And maybe she thought it was just as silly as a bubblegum wrapper. But to me, it was this most amazing thing she could have passed to me across time. So I want to say a blessing to all the people who are losing people they love at a time when they can't see them at the end. And I hope that you will find your bubblegum wrappers to hold on to, whether they are pictures that your loved one took of you so you can see yourself through their eyes or the things they left in the drawer or the memories that are in your heart. Love you. Corey, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. I know that, you know, so many of us are grieving family members, grieving friends right now, and even just grieving that we can't be with them in the way that we want to be. And I love the way that you've elevated these bubblegum wrappers for us. I think that that's a really beautiful reading of this very difficult scene and of the gesture that your mom gave you. So thank you so, so much for that beautiful voicemail. And since you're in Medford, go visit the Goslings at Fellsmere Pond. They're so cute. Are they related to Ryan Gosling? They are. All baby geese are related to Ryan Gosling. That is a little known fact. (laughs) Um, It's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And Vanessa, I want to bless George. So often we see the twins as like a consolidated unit. And there's just such a, a sweetness in seeing both Fred's reaction to George's injury, but also George's like humor and just silliness in the midst of something really difficult and 
there's just something so good natured about them both. And we've seen that over and over again. And we see it so clearly here. And I, yeah, I just fell a little bit in love with George in this chapter. So for anyone who can make everyone else's day a little easier by telling a silly joke now and then, a blessing for you. Amen. How about you, Vanessa? Ugh, I have to bless Molly Weasley for like the sweetest thing in the whole world. Harry comes and she, of course, is like, you're the real Harry and, you know, does no security check. And then she asks for news about almost literally her whole family. And he's like, I have no news. And it's clear that like two of her relatives were already supposed to come back and haven't yet. And all she says is, well, thank God you're all right. And it's just like the most loving, the most incredible thing to say. You know, it is the model of counting your blessings. And she's a hero. And Molly Weasley, I love you. And I'm so glad you're all right. This has been Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you join our Facebook common room, then you can be part of our incredible mutual aid fund. So go enjoy the Harry Potter Sacred Text common room on Facebook. You can also come and join the incredible community of people who are supporting us on Patreon who allow us to do what we do. And we hope to see you at our Summer with Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on the orange button to learn more about our summer options. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and of course, my book is still available for pre-order. Pew, 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 The Power of Ritual. Next week, we'll read Chapter 6, The Ghoul in Pajamas, through the theme of hesitation. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Ball. And we are distributed by Acast. Thanks to Corey for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Purcell. Well, I've told you about my Latin teacher, right? No, was he hot? No, in middle school, he was awful. If he liked you, he called you Brian. And if he didn't, he called you Fishface. My my Latin teacher was awful, too. He threw keys at our heads. This is why I didn't like Latin. Me, too. Brian and Fishface, though. <laughs> Needless to say, I was mostly Fishface.